Hello, my name is Jody Lima, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, posted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today's interview is with Karen Blumenthal. Uh, She's a journalist and author of Jane Against the World, Roe v. Wade, and the Fight for Reproductive Rights. I spoke to Karen earlier this year in March, and I was saddened to learn a few weeks back that she died on May 18th at the age of 61. So in lieu of reading a poem uh, like I usually do, I thought I would read part of the article on her life and legacy that was written in the Dallas Morning News by Maria Halkius and Cheryl Hall, uh, which was sent to me by our publicist. I'll also provide a link to the whole article if you're interested on my website. And the title of the article is Karen Blumenthal, author and former Dallas Morning News business editor, dies. The journalist and book author excelled in tackling complicated topics for teens and was an advocate for Dallas libraries. Karen Blumenthal, an award-winning author of narrative nonfiction for young people and a lifelong journalist who chose to elevate journalism in her hometown of Dallas, died Monday after a heart attack. Blumenthal, 61, tackled complicated and controversial topics and turned her relentless research into books to satisfy the curiosity of young adult readers, their parents, and educators. She wrote books about sex discrimination, the stock market crash of 1929, prohibition, reproductive rights, and modern historical figures who overcame and pioneered, such as Sam Walton, Hillary Clinton, and Steve Jobs. She turned to the genre in the early 2000s after she struggled to find books she liked for her daughters, who were her greatest pride. She wrote 12 books for teens and adults, but there's not a cookbook among them, despite her reputation as an accomplished baker with amazing cookie recipes. Her family said that anyone who wants to honor Blumenthal can do so by working to repair the world and enjoying a great cookie. The Dallas native started her journalism career at Hillcrest High School, where she was editor of the student newspaper and the yearbook and valedictorian in 1977. At Duke University, she was editor of the Chronicle. She worked at the Dallas Morning News as an intern and staff writer, and returned in 1992 as business editor for more than two years until the Wall Street Journal called her back to run its Dallas bureau. She spent 25 years with the Wall Street Journal as a writer, editor, and columnist. She received an MBA from Southern Methodist University in 1990. Blumenthal was married to her college sweetheart, Scott McCartney, and the two of them were lifelong basketball fans of their alma mater, the Duke Blue Devils. She joked that she stole McCartney from his native Boston to start off their journalism careers together in Dallas. McCartney, an airline columnist at the Wall Street Journal, and Blumenthal raised two daughters in Lake Highlands, Abby McCartney of Washington, D.C., and Jenny McCartney of Los Angeles. Blumenthal's latest book, Jane Against the World, Roe v. Wade and the Fight for Reproductive Rights, came about as a project to look at abortion through the history of the famous lawsuit, Roe v. Wade. She wrote that she clearly remembered when the case was decided, as at age 13 she was already a devoted reader of the Dallas Morning News and the Dallas Times-Herald. But in trying to understand Roe, I needed to understand how the lawsuit lawsuit came about, she wrote in her book. Before too long, I was enmeshed in a much bigger story about women's rights, reproductive rights, racial discrimination, medicine, and religion. The book, which was published in February, explains the history of reproductive rights to teenagers. A review of the book in the New York Times said, Blumenthal has done her job well. Presenting the history and leaving readers to wrestle with what the future may hold for families facing unwanted pregnancies. Emily Feinberg, Blumenthal's book editor at Roaring Brook Press, was also working with her on future projects and ideas. 
She was one of the best authors, the kindest person, and she was hilarious on top of that. Karen could see all sides of things, from the darkness to the humor, Feinberg said. We lost someone really great. My guest today is Karen Blumenthal, author of such nonfiction books as Hillary Rodham Clinton, A Woman Living History, and Bonnie and Clyde, The Making of a Legend. Her most recent book, written for teen readers, is Jane Against the World, Roe v. Wade and the Fight for Reproductive Rights. You can find our website at www.karenblumenthal.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Karen. Thanks so much for having me. Now, I wanted to start talking about your latest book by looking at the title. Uh, and I think uh, Roe versus Wade is something that's very familiar to most people, but the Jane against the world may be less so. I wanted to talk a little bit about who or what Jane is and why you chose that as a lead into this particular history. So there were actually several Janes. A lot of people look at that and they say, oh, she's writing about Jane Roe, who's the plaintiff or the person who filed the lawsuit um, that changed uh, abortion rights for women in America. But there were other Janes too. And I was sort of struck by how many Janes there were. There was a group in Chicago that called itself Jane, um, had a longer name, but everybody referred to it as Jane, um, that started as an abortion referral service in the in the 1960s and morphed into something more than that. There was OBGYN by the name of Jane Hodgson in Minnesota, a very prominent OBGYN who really was concerned about her patients and uh, performed an abortion on a woman who had been exposed to rubella and was arrested and convicted of that, ended up having to practice her um, medicine outside of Minnesota while her case was on appeal. Um, there were just other people. Jane just became the women, and, and even in a way, just the broader group of people who fought for reproductive rights. So I, it was sort of catchy. And we should say, too, that even though you have uh, Roe versus Wade in the, in the title, uh, this book is doesn't start there. It actually talks about the history of abortion and reproductive rights going uh, much further back. All the way back, right? <laughs> So I, I initially thought, oh, I'm going to write about this case. It's going to be very focused. I told everybody, oh, it's going to be very short. <laughs> I was so wrong. Um, but I realized as I did my research, you could not separate reproductive rights from abortion rights. You could not uh, separate contraception from that. And in fact, they kind of move in lockstep throughout history, all the way back to sort of the beginning of recorded history. They sort of move in lockstep. So it became a bigger book. Um, as I as I realized that, and this is a book written specifically for younger readers, young adult readers, and and, and what was why was it important to have a uh, that you wanted to have a, a book like this for young adults, um, uh, this particular history? Well, it's that's a great question because it's pretty serious stuff, but uh, um, and it's really aimed at uh, probably fourteen and up, although it depends on the kid. But it's a very important subject because this is this really hits teenagers where they are. I mean, teenagers get pregnant. Teenagers have to make very difficult decisions. And we treat them differently than we treat adults. In some ways, we ask more of them than is asked of adults um, when they have to make these decisions or when they're faced with them. Um, they have to consult a parent, usually, which is something an adult doesn't have to do. They have to have access and, and uh, to services. They have to have access to funds. So that's a very different experience. But also, I think there is so much out there in the, in, the, in the bigger world about this that is 
misrepresented on all sides, to be honest. And I, I often have written about subjects that are very much hot topics of debate, uh, guns, drinking, Hillary Clinton, <laughs> for that matter. Um, and this sort of fit into that in that in that young people surely have heard a lot about the subject, but may not know very many true facts. So I really wanted to give them the straight story. What happened? Why we're here? Um, who the people were? Uh, what it all means. And so that's what I set out to do. Because oftentimes having the history, uh, you know, of what what happened before gives us a better perspective on what's going on now. Right. My my little mantra is that nonfiction provides context for a complicated world. And I really believe that. I really believe that if you can understand how we got here, um, you know, whether you're talking about gun rights or you're talking about reproductive rights, then at least you have some way to measure what the debate's about. Now, what I found interesting, too, in telling this story, although the focus is on uh, abortion and reproductive rights, it's also about how factors such as race and class are really a huge part of that history as well. Yeah, that was a piece, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't go looking for it. It found me. And I was really quite fascinated by that. I, I actually... I guess I found that that has become a theme in almost everything I've done, that when you have money or you have access or you have certain privilege, you can claim certain rights that other people can't. Uh, but it, it was it's particularly startling in this situation because white women and, and black women are treated so differently over time that, that it, I had a better understanding for the first time of why there's conflict. Um, within the women's movement, why there is sort of a natural difference of opinion about some of these things. Just to give you an example, uh, white women who wanted to have their tubes tied um, and therefore, you know, essentially be sterilized so that they didn't have to have more, they wouldn't have more children, they were done having children, um, were not able to do that until the 1970s without jumping through a lot of hurdles. They had to often meet this crazy rule called the Rule of 120 where their age times their number of children equaled 120. So if you were 30 and you were you were done having kids, you had to have at least four kids to be considered to have your tubes tied. Whereas if you were black or Latina, um, a well-meaning doctor, and I'll sort of put that in air quotes, a well-meaning doctor might tie your tubes or, or perform a hysterectomy on you when, when you were in a hospital for something else because they thought you couldn't afford more children or you'd had enough. Or um, and without your consent, because consent at that time wasn't required, and and so those are two very very different experiences. Um, white women had to almost fight for that right, and and women of color um, had that right, you know, almost taken away. I mean, you know, imposed on them in a way that's uh, pretty shocking today. So I I found that all very insightful. I mean, there are a lot of things that, uh, I mean, I, I thought I knew a little of history, but there are things that surprised me. I, I'll give you an example. Um, I knew that, you know, that there's uh, obviously re religious opposition um, to uh, for the fight for abortion rights. But I didn't realize that there were actually a number of uh, clergy and religious groups who were on the other side. Uh, and that surprised me. It's just something I, I wasn't aware of. And I'm wondering... So I these, too. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if there were there other things, was there something uh, besides the things you talked about or that, that uh, surprised you or things that, that, that when you did the research said, well, that's something I didn't know about. 
Yeah, no, the, the clergy consultation service involved thousands of ministers and some rabbis in the 1960s and right up until 1973. And they were um, helping women find safe but illegal abortions. And uh, it really put the whole argument in a different light for me. Another area was this sterilization without consent. Um, I think some people are aware of it if you're aware of the civil rights movement. But the one that really kicked me in the gut was that in, in, right after Roe was decided, a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old were sterilized by a family planning clinic. And that one just uh, doubled me over, I have to say. That was shocking to me. The role of Jane in Chicago, um, these women, average women, just like me, really, um, mothers, young women, students, teachers even, decided that if people who weren't doctors could perform abortions, they could too. And they were trained and learned how to do it. And and we're performing abortions in a rented apartment. I mean, my goodness, that was shocking. Um, without a medical degree, without uh, anything but some kind of basic training, that was amazing. Uh, there were just a number of things I found um, kind of incredible. Even the even the court case, which you know is some hardcore you know legal stuff. How can you how can you do a court case without that? I was surprised to find that the National Right to Life Committee, which was very young and still kind of unformed, was very involved in the state of Texas's brief and in the way the state of Texas presented its arguments. There's nothing wrong with that. That apparently happens uh, lots of times. But I just didn't know. I thought it was very interesting. Although, like I said, this is a this is a history, and you take it up to you know the most uh, recent Supreme uh, Court, Court justices. This is uh, not a history that uh, has. Ended. In other words, it's it's a history that is still ongoing. We don't know exactly uh, what's the next. I guess what's the next chapter uh, in the book. But you had to stop somewhere. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm very aware of that. I live in Texas. It is. Some people think it's a purple state. I think it's still pretty red um, and conservative. And it's it's the kind of place where I had to be. I had to think twice about even telling a group of people what I was working on um, because there's so much difference of opinion. I happen to live uh, very close to a women's health center where abortions are performed, and I drive by it every day, and there are always people out front protesting. So I'm, I'm very aware that there are different viewpoints, and I tried really hard to be respectful of that and to reflect those in the book. Um, and also to um, to reflect that this is not a settled issue, and it and it, it hasn't been for um, some decades now. What do, what do you think you 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 want most from uh, from readers uh, to get out of this book? I, you know, I want them to better understand that this is not um, a really cut and dry, uh, lack of a better term, black and white issue. Most people are not a hundred percent for or a hundred percent against. It's complicated. It's emotional. It's um, it's a it's a really deeply personal issue for everybody. And and maybe if we all understood that, we could find a little more common ground. But uh, that's not where we are right now. So I, I would hope that they would see um, other sides. I, I'm not. I did not set out, and I have no intention of trying to convince somebody of one belief or another. Um, but that they better understand what the issues are. Now, the, the book you picked as one of your uh, favorite uh, uh, books for young readers is, is another nonfiction book. It's uh, The 57 Bus by uh, Bashka Slater, and it was published in 2017. 
for readers who haven't had a chance to read it, and this was the first time I'd read it myself, can you talk a little bit of um, what what, uh, story it relates? Sure. Um, So the way that I like to describe it when I'm trying to convince other people that they have to read it (laughs) is that it's about two young people who have an unfortunate interaction on a bus on the way home from school that has tremendous consequences and that um, changes their lives. And it's a, it's a real story. It's a true story. Um, And it gets to all, all of these issues that we've sort of been talking about race, class, in this case, also um, gender, uh, because one of the um, people is non, is is non-binary and, or a, a gendered. Um, And it's just so powerful and it's, just so beautifully written. Um, I, I just couldn't put it down and I have recommended it to so many people, adults and young people, because I think, um, first of all, it's enlightening for those of us who are still learning um, about gender issues. I'm a different generation, you know, myself, I'm a long way from being a teen. So I have, I have you know, different, pers- I have different perspectives to learn about, um, having grown up at a different time. But also, I, I think it really highlights so many important uh, issues in in our communities and and in kids' lives. So I, I just think it's a fantastic book. Did you like it? What did you think? Oh, very much so, very much so. And it's it's I think it's uh, something that I'd, uh, I'd I'd probably heard about at one point, but it's it's always interesting to get sort of a fuller picture of something you just sort of hear in headlines, you know. Um, so um, and just the way it was written, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, is just uh, fascinating me too. And, and like I said, this is two teens are at the center of this story. Uh, uh, Sasha and Richard. I want to start with uh, just talking about Sasha, who who they are, uh, where they're coming from, and um, you talked about the, their identification is, I believe, uh, agender is uh, the term they use, or non-binary, I believe, is also also accurate. Um, you could talk a little bit about who Sasha is. Well, so I think Sasha was also on the spectrum, a very bright kid, a very creative kid. Uh, they go to a private school where their needs are met in in special ways in the sense that there's sort of accommodation, but also uh, a really vibrant learning environment. And there's, you know, there is some privilege there, very doting mom and dad in a good way, not in an overprotective way, but, but that are very involved and, and, and have the ability to provide things for their child. So, but at the same time, as a person on the spectrum and um, a person who's agender, Sasha faces some different challenges than the other kids do. And we should point out, we're both uh, using the pronoun they, uh, which is something that is mentioned as something very important to Sasha uh, uh, and uh, who lets people know that uh, referencing uh, using they and them is is an important for themselves and and their um, own self identity, and, and it was very helpful for me because I, for the first time I felt like I began to understand the pronoun issues, which you know not all of us like us like I said not all of us have exposure to um, understanding that, and so I I appreciated um, being enlightened in that way or or at least educated in that way. And the other teen involved is Richard, who comes from a very different uh, background. And you can talk a little bit about his background and what sort of leads up to this this moment that kind of changes both of their both of their lives. Right. So Richard's the child of a teen mother. Uh, he is raised in a 
in a loving home, but without much financial ability, uh, goes to a public school, a, a good kid by all accounts, hasn't been in trouble before, um, has a personality that, um, you know, attracts people to him. Uh, but he's horsing around on this bus that day and he makes just a, a terrible, terrible, terrible choice. And uh, the circumstances and the consequences for him are extremely severe. It's also extremely severe for Sasha. I don't want to play that down. Um, it is also extremely severe for Sasha. But the the attention and the way that it becomes interpreted and the way it, it plays out in the press and in public perception, you know, is is harder on Richard. And it and it's just you know the the parents find a common ground in a way that's very moving. It's just a very meaningful story at looking at a lot of things that happen in our society where we make assumptions about people of all kinds. Well, I found interesting is even though uh, Richard and Sasha come from very different uh, backgrounds, they actually have some things in common. They're both, uh, you know, both very bright and people who have a sense of other people, too, and know how to sort of draw people in. And, and are appealing to other people. They both have that sort of sort of same sort of ability to. I, I'm not describing it. They both it very have well. very promising futures. Yes, they both have very promising uh, futures, and so there's there's that sort of that interesting commonality between the two of them. Right, right, and then but then you you layer in because um, the, you know they become Richard in particular becomes um, enmeshed in the legal system, which plays out in a different way than we sometimes want relationships to play out in. You know, you've got to abide by certain behavior that the lawyers might dictate um, because of the way that you, you know, would be defended and things like that, that, you know, also leave different perceptions that are intent than are intended. So um, I, I just found all of the layers of it um, to be amazing. But, but, you know, what really elevates it is that it's written in, in a just remarkable way. Actually, I want to talk a little bit about that uh, the the structure of the book because uh, it's it's not just a, a a straight recounting of the events. You know, there's sometimes there's background of uh, both Sasha and Richard, and sometimes other sort of characters who, who factor into the story. But sometimes there's there's other prose techniques. There's there's some text messages. There's some even free form poetry, and so there's a, a variety of sort of prose techniques. And back and forth that goes into telling the story. So it's not just a, a recounting of events, but done in sort of very creative ways. And I don't know what you thought about how the story is told, um, not just as a sort of a straight history, but uh, using different actually techniques for um, engaging the reader. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just it's told in, a, in an amazing way. I mean, even. Um, the first chapter which sort of sets it up. And I think she says, Dashka says something like, um, maybe if we could go back, you know, this wouldn't have had to happen this way. I mean, there's just this, the way that the, the whole scene is set is um, incredible. And I, I have to say that I read it and I put it down and I thought, I will never write anything this good. And so I should just stop right now because um, and then I, then I, you know, my ego got the better of me and I thought, well, there needs to be more than one book in the world. So I'll have to put mine in there too. But, <laughs> but it is, um, I, I have not, I've had this opportunity to meet her. Um, she, yeah. And she's got a background. I mean, I'm, a, I'm, my background is in journalism, but in newspapers and her background is also in journalism, but interestingly in magazine and sort of alternative journalism, sort of more the, the alt weekly that, you know, does the longer form 
And I think, I think that informs some of the writing. It can, it's a, it's a different, it's perhaps less, I don't know, stiff's the right word, but a little less straight ahead. But it is, I mean, she also writes picture books and fiction. I mean, she's just a, a brilliant um, writer on all levels. Um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't actually ask her how, you know, did it come out that way? Did it, did, did she work with an editor to do these various things? Were there pieces that were cut or, or whatever? Um, but I, so I don't really know her process, but it, it just, to me, it just works beautifully. And I know it, it generated some sort of mixed responses was a finalist for several awards, but didn't win them. And I, I, I'm baffled by that because I just think it's a brilliant piece of work. Now, what I found interesting, too, is like your, like your own book, this is more than a, a book about a moment of violence. It deals with a lot of different issues, like you said. It deals with race and gender identity and poverty and privilege and the justice system. And so there's, a, there's a, actually a lot going on. It isn't just, a, you know, something bad happened and people had to deal with their lives. It deals with a lot of very relevant uh, issues that are very much still ongoing. Yes, and that's, I think that's one of the things I love about it. I love layers in books where, um, you know, perhaps I'm writing about uh, prohibition, but it's also about social movements and about how change happens. And um, Jane is also about how change happens and how um, social social views adapt and evolve over time and why, how uh, the legal system or the medical profession or a very group of committed people can change things. Um, I think that's that's part of what makes a great story. It's not enough to, you know, if it's just two people and something happens to them, that's, well, that's kind of a news story or a magazine story. But for a book, you need those layers for the reader to walk away with a bigger picture of the world. And I think it's one of those stories too, like I said, I was talking earlier about like a, just getting headlines of things like this. And it's one of those stories that, you know, when they happen, they're thrown out the media, people have an immediate and visceral reaction to it and they let you know about it. And of course, a book like this is a corrective to that to give us, you know, to those sort of snap judgments. And I'm just wondering, why do we still, because we still do things like that, demanding immediate actions, even when we don't know the whole story, and easy, easy answers. Is it just like human nature? Is there something in their current media culture that makes that more prevalent than before? Or has it always been something that we do? Well, I think it's it's probably always been there in one way or another, but it does seem more prevalent today with social media um, that people rush to judgment. They think they know. It's a little frustrating to me, but that's also to me speaks to why journalism remains so important, and it's, it remains so important to have nonfiction in the world so that um, somebody digs deeper and gets under the surface and reminds you that it, it's not that simple. Um, I think our lives are. Are, are richer for that. So, and also, um, we maybe make better decisions if we have a, have the bigger picture too. Um, I know, I know from her book that I I just have a, a a very different view of a lot of things. There's an adult book that did that for me too, Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson's book about his work representing people who are convicted of, of capital crimes and facing the death penalty. Um, they're the kind of books that you read and you feel like you're really um, forever changed. And, uh, and, and that's the greatest power of books to me. And I know, I know for a lot of people that's from fiction, but, uh, when it happens in nonfiction to me, that's like, you know, rockets and fireworks going off. 
Now, I, I have to admit, I haven't done a lot of nonfiction on this podcast, and, and probably not even as much in my own raising, reading as I do. I, I tend to tend toward fiction more than nonfiction. Although I, when I was very much drawn in by this book and your book, you know, when I, I don't tend to gravitate toward it, but when I, I get a, I find a good nonfiction book, I, I really start to read it. And so what is the value of fic, nonfiction to fiction readers? What, how would you describe it? And what can we do to get more people like me to read it <laughs> rather than just picking up the, the, you know, the usual sort of novel? Well, I wish I had the magic potion for that because I think a lot of people would really appreciate this kind of nonfiction. The, the issue is that it's there for young people. It can be hard to find because there is a lot of nonfiction written for the library market. It is written for reports. It's written for that biography you have to write in third grade, fifth grade, seventh grade, whatever grade it is. And that nonfiction tends to be focused on facts. It doesn't tend to be especially well-written. But the, there was a, a push a few years ago through this common core curriculum, which has fallen by the wayside a little bit, to recognize that as we get older, as we go through high school and then through college, nonfiction becomes more and more important in our world. In, in the real world, in the working day world, the vast majority of us have to deal with facts. We have to deal with whether we're in business or we're teachers or we're um, uh, publishers, there's you know, you have to deal with real things. And so a, a really good understanding of, of true storytelling is very important. And there is a lot of really great young adult and children's nonfiction being published, but you have to be looking for it in a different way because the libraries have so much of this um, material that is really made, sometimes I think to make children miserable, but really intended to help them uh, write their own reports. Uh, I would love for them to to experience this kind of nonfiction that has plot and characters and themes and and big ideas, just like fiction does, so that they they can apply that themselves when they come to um, writing papers in college and and in the real world. So, and there's some publishers that that really um, 57 Bus is published by um, an imprint of Macmillan, which which is a, a, a publisher I publish a lot with. There's a, a few other publishers that are really invested in this, but not every publisher is. So that makes me kind of sad. I know I've talked, uh, and some writers have done. Like we talked about historical fiction. Sometimes uh, usefulness of pairing. Uh, a, a nonfiction and a fiction source to sort of um, compare and contrast and get sort of different points of view. And that might be a helpful way to sort of, uh, and getting people to think about things in different ways by looking at it through different lenses. Right. And, and those authors do a ton of research too. I was recently on a panel with uh, Ruta Sepetis and Monica Hesse and Tracy Chi and a woman named Sharon Cameron, who all um, do some historical research in their books and and they do a, a ton of work to be sure that they're representing those time frames accurately and and so that plays into it too but then they have the flexibility to have their characters do things that you know may or may not have ever been done um i, I think that for a lot of people i think especially for boys but for, for girls too because i was one of those girls uh, nonfiction is more interesting it's more interesting to know how animals you know, really work or why they do things that they do or to understand uh, weather or to understand 
people, they have biographies that really get below the surface. So, I, I, but I, I also realize that um, a lot of teachers and librarians may not be exposed to those stories in the same way, and so they don't know to recommend them. That's part of my like personal mission is to try and make this more visible. Um, I am always willing to send a list of uh, great nonfiction writers to anybody who wants to find books about anything. <laughs> well, uh, Karen, uh, thank you so much for taking the time uh, for letting me give me a chance to read your book and talk about it today and for introducing me to the 57 bus, which I said I hadn't read and talking to me about it today and getting me to think about that. I need to really up my own nonfiction game and this podcast as well. <laughs> I'll send you a list. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for giving me the chance to do this. I appreciate it. You can find Karen's website at www.karenblumenthal.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in the Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.